Hello, everyone, and welcome to the MACD Career Conversations podcast, where we talk to career people about their careers. My name is David Driver, and today my guest is Karen Birch. Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. No problem. So uh, to just start off, can we just uh, get you to introduce yourself and just talk about your current role and what your current duties are there? Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So um, I work at Resource Assistance for Youth, um, and our agency supports youth 29 and under with uh, really anything that they might need. Um, We started as an organization uh, to really meet the needs of street-entrenched youth who were traveling across Canada, and we've evolved our programming over the last number of years to really fit what youth need. I oversee the education and training programming. Uh, We have a growing opportunities program, which is kind of a first stage to employment for young folks. Uh, We have a lot of opportunities for young people to work within Ray property so that they're learning basic work skills uh, in a supported workplace. And then we have a level up program, which is the biggest program I oversee. And it's a 23 week education and training program for youth 18 to 29. And that includes uh, seven weeks of in-class learning uh, and 16 weeks in a work placement. And we'll be launching a new classroom in uh, October. And that is going to be targeted towards youth exiting CFS care. Um, So the intention behind that program is to hopefully eliminate youth uh, who are exiting CFS care from becoming homeless, as well as from needing to access services like EIA. Wow. That's quite a bit there. (laughs) <laughs> and other um, duties as assigned, right? Yes, yeah. <laughs> Whatever else can be done around there. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll definitely dive into all that in a little bit. But first, let's get to know a little bit more about you. So uh, mm-hmm. Karen, will, were you born in Manitoba? I was not. Um, oh. I was born in uh, Prince George, British Columbia. Oh, cool. I grew, I grew up in Maple Ridge, BC, which is about 45 kilometers east of Vancouver. And how long were you there before you ended up moving to Winnipeg? I moved to Winnipeg for university. So I was 17 and a half, 18 when I moved here. Um, But I grew up spending my summers and Christmases here. So Winnipeg's always been a second home. Okay. So you have family here? Yep. You just loved it that much? Yeah, this is a vacation destination? Oh, sure. (laughs) (laughs) There's some tourism hype. There we go. So growing up in BC, going through high school, did you have any idea what you wanted to be as a career? Did you have any sort of uh, initial goals or were you still kind of figuring it out at that point? Um, So when I was growing up in BC, I was very music driven. Um, I was reading music before I could read English uh, and was playing the piano. I became very involved in choirs, um, both classical groups and jazz groups and then became very involved in the the band programs and was excelling in French horn and trumpet. And so in high school throughout uh, my time, I really thought that I was going to be a music teacher Mm. or become a music therapist or some sort of performer. So was your family musically talented? I guess was was that something, I don't know if you just picked that up on your own when you were a kid or if that was something that was introduced to you? Yeah, my mom's side is very musical, you know, whether it was singing in, you know, church choirs in Manitoba or, you know, singing in other groups. Singing is a a very, very big part of of my mom's side of the family. Um, When I was growing up, 
my mom's sister, my aunt Connie, she unfortunately passed away quite young from multiple sclerosis and she was a music teacher. Mm. As I was growing up and kind of becoming my own human, I started to hear from people that she and I were very similar. And that I think really drove my passion for music because it was a way for me to connect with her and to learn more about her through music because um, I couldn't ask her about those things. And so I figured I could experience that instead. So you graduate from high school. What was the process of moving to Winnipeg? Was there a decision there that you made or that your family made or you wanted to go to university and you didn't know where and you just decided it was Manitoba? Um, I mean, I think it was a little bit of everything. Um, you know, I had very strong ties to Winnipeg just because we spent so much time here and my mom's side of the family was here. I have always been a fiercely independent person. And so I did definitely feel the need to embark on just trying to figure out life on my own. And I felt a sense of security coming to Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. Um, and another draw for me was the fact that um, the the university that I went to had an excellent music program. And so I could move to a familiar place, be independent and live on my own, um, and also experience music in a way that I was looking forward to. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that you uh, arrived at the U of M? That's my guess. No, I went to Canadian Mennonite University. Oh, I was wrong. Oh, boy. <laughs> I had like a 50-50 shot there. I ended up specializing a lot in vocal performance and French horn, but I did finish with a general studies degree. Um, And that was partly because throughout my time, my goals were already starting to change. And I was also seeing that the career path in Manitoba and in BC at the time for teachers, it wasn't as easy as it was, you know, five to 10 years before. And I'm not a very competitive person, but I am a career-driven person and I didn't want to be not satisfied. Yeah. So that's very interesting. So you go through university, you, you kind of have a clear goal in mind, but I guess it slowly transformed while you were there. Mm-hmm. So you graduate from university. What is the first step that you take? Did it ever cross your mind that, yeah, Winnipeg's a place I want to stay. Maybe I go back to BC. Do you pursue music? Do you not pursue music? What's the mm-hmm. what's the next step from there? <laughs> well, I think like it all kind of started when I was seeing my older friends graduate with music degrees and just seeing some of the challenges that they were having. And that was an early kind of way for myself to shift, I guess, and start thinking about other options. Um, the other part of it for me, though, was that music had been an integral part of my life since I was three. And I was then in my early 20s and could only relate to the world in music. I didn't really have other hobbies. I connected with my friends over music and I felt I felt like I didn't know myself. And so I knew at that point in time that I may go back to it at some point, but I needed for myself to take a break so that I could f- learn more about myself and learn more about my other passions. Um, and so I, I kind of went cold turkey skipped my graduation oh, and boy. started my first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that decision was real early, I guess. Yeah. Um, so then I guess in mm-hmm. finding yourself, is this when you started to think of career or was that a little bit further down the line? Like where does kind of thinking about career and helping youth enter the picture? Is it earlier on right now or is it a little further down the line? 
Um, you know, it's, it's all pretty closely connected, I would say. I started working with adults with intellectual disabilities on my convocation day, and I found passions in that pretty quickly. And for me, you know, certainly there was an element of helping people, but it was also about believing in people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think a lot of the similarities for that work and the work that I do today is um, I was working with people who were often turned away or told they couldn't do something. Um, And I was very lucky to be in positions where I could listen and I could help create some opportunities for for people, um, create volunteer opportunities, work opportunities. And I think that's where I really started to figure out what my passions were. Interesting. So how long did that... uh... How long did that phase kind of last for? Was that something that took a while for you to think about? And then, you know, because again, it, it's good always to just to take a break. I always hear these stories of people, uh, you know, after they go through a long fit of education, just even just to sit and kind of have new experiences and all that. I don't know yeah. for you if that was a conscious decision where you're thinking of, yeah, I'm building a skill towards my future career, or this is just something mm-hmm. that I'm enveloping myself in just to get away from. Yeah. Yeah. So far. Well, I, my my dad is a retired teacher and my mom is a retired speech and language pathologist. And so growing up, I was often connected with uh, people with disabilities or people who were connected with systems. So my first job out of university still had some familiarities to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were things within that that I knew I knew I could do and I knew I was good at. Um, I think in a lot of ways, I still fell into that role. I was doing a reference for a friend of mine to work at. Um, it was Epic Opportunities was my first adult job. And they ended up <laughs> offering me a job while I was doing the reference. Oh, wow. <laughs> which was kind of fun. And he got the job. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but I think that was that was a big part of that journey. And I slowly started to realize within the first couple of years that um, you know, I was interested in the frontline work, but more interested in um, kind of the future planning and the, the the project management. And that's where I moved into more management roles. And eventually, um, I fell into an employment consultant position, which is, I think, how a lot of people in career development find career development is you kind of fall into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they always come from different angles, right? And they're never expecting it. So. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Your, sto- your story is very unique, but very similar in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, in terms of management, in terms of maybe wanting to be a manager or a higher up, was that something that you always had a knack for? Or is that something, again, that you kind of just stumbled upon and found yourself liking? I think it's, it's something that I like. I mean, I like I I oversee a large program now, and I don't necessarily love the idea that I'm sometimes considered a boss or or anything. Mm-hmm. I like the I like having the ability to mentor people and to to be a positive leader, you know, and and I really and I think even back then it was less about a hierarchy and being above people and more about having a vision and supporting a group of people to achieve that vision. Mm. Um, And that's very much the same stance that I have today. Yeah. Yeah, That's even another topic as well, where even managers come from even different you know, different experiences, different backgrounds, where it's a mm-hmm. it's a whole other story itself. Um, so, in terms of your role at Resource Assistant for Youth, when did that role begin? Did you begin there as a director, or did you start lower and then uh, rise up? Um, so, I started as a director. I was working with the province of Manitoba previously. Okay. 
And I was hired to um, essentially create, implement, and then lead the employment and training programs. Um, with any nonprofit, you often get your funding and you're told, why haven't you started this already? <laughs> and yeah. so I was, I was hired to kind of put the brainchild of the agency, which happened to be a very similar brainchild to my own plan for a future employment program together. We had one month where I had to hire, I think, six staff, do intakes for a bunch of youth, figure out our expectations, put together nine weeks of curriculum, and then get everything going. Mm -hmm. um, and so three and a half years later, that one's steady, and we're working on starting the next one yeah. in the same time frame. <laughs> So previously you were at the province? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what was your role there? Um, I had two roles there. I started off as a labor market service advisor, and I was hired into a pilot project uh, called the Pathway Support Unit. Mm -hmm. And in that program, we were working exclusively with um, people who were on social assistance or EIA who were looking for employment supports. And so I was providing um, career counseling, funding for schooling or different programs, and referrals to other programs. And I loved that job. It yeah. was it was wonderful. Um, and then I moved into a career development consultant position. I was there for, I think, just under a year before I moved into Ray. And that work was very similar, just a bit of a broader audience. Mm -hmm. In terms of the government structure, in terms of, yeah, like not-for-profit structure, is that something that uh, is really resourceful for you? Is that is that a way that you feel is the best way to help people? I don't know if you wanted to comment on just sort of that structure, because I don't think a lot of people uh, can realize, you know, working for government is its own set of rules, its own set of structures and all those things. Working for yeah. not-for-profit is as well. Yeah, I, I struggle with it. Um, and I do, I do feel like I have a benefit having worked on both sides of the fence and, and uh, having wonderful experiences on both sides. Um, I think it's really unfortunate that there are so many amazing opportunities out there for job seekers and people who um, are looking for employment or education supports that are provided by the province that don't get advertised. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's a lot of missed opportunity and I think that there's a lot of fear for the clientele, and that's largely because government bodies are scary and government bodies are often people that manage your whole life. Yeah. Um, I used to be very open and honest with the people that I worked with on social assistance in saying that, you know, I wanted to build trust with people because I knew that other folks that they may need to be connected with would would be looking for every information and you know sometimes i would joke that it would be down to your last bowel movement um <laughs> and and simply because there were sometimes so many things that people had to report on that had nothing to do with work and that's a huge deficit with the system is so much of it is irrelevant yeah. um but there is great benefit i think the benefit to nonprofits is that um, you have the ability to be more creative and work with the audience that you support. Um, I've been able to work with my agency to create a program that is targeted towards youth who have been turned away, who are on social assistance, who have lived with significant addictions. And we're saying, come into our program, join us. We're going to teach what you need rather than saying, you've got all of these things going on in your life. 
you're not ready. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think like one of the challenges with that nonprofits do face is that you're constantly fighting the fight. And so you're, you're always needing to validate what you're doing to get more funding. And there's a lot of unknowns. And I think that that can be scary for a lot of people, um, regardless of their role, because mm-hmm. you're always needing to validate it. And there's always the risk that no matter who's funding you, they could say, I'm going to give you all this money, but these are the directives that we have. And that's kind of the fear in the nonprofit world. Yeah. Excellent. So talking specifically about your organization, Ray, um, I guess the first question I have is, are, are your clients, your students, are they mostly referrals? Or are they mostly, they seek you out independently? Is it a mix of both? How do you usually get like the, the bulk of your, your candidates there? Um, so for, for the agency at Ray, where people can access any of our services, we generally do not take referrals. It's mostly uh, word of mouth and a majority of our youth are finding us from their friends or family members. Um, we advertise on social media, stuff like that. In terms of the programming that I oversee, we do take referrals, um, but we only we will only allow um, in our application process for participants or interested um, students, if you will, to apply on their own. Oh. Um, I I don't personally accept uh, applications that would come in from EIA or CFS, and the only reason for that is participants are more likely to be successful in a program if they're going through the process themselves rather than being referred by another body. Because often what happens is there's a lot of information that's not shared. That's not necessarily the fault of anybody. What we're able to assess when people come in is their readiness rather than kind of having that person feel forced like they need to be ready. Okay. So I'm I'm very curious now because I, I just want to know what kind of trends that you're experiencing or some some of the the patterns that you've been recognizing. So even when it comes to those basic work skills you were talking about, do you find that a majority of students are missing a, a crucial skill, or are they all pretty varied in you know what they uh, have strengths and weaknesses in? I think it varies for sure. Um, I th- I think it's really important to keep in mind that. Um, a lot of our youth might not have skills that reflect well on paper, but once we support them to articulate that in different ways, the world's their oyster. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, like a majority of our youth have not finished their grade 12. And so we're often supporting people to find their first job or an entry-level position. Okay. But we have had a lot of people move into college or be promoted in their workplaces. The biggest trends that we see are people interested in um, construction and roofing and kind of those those trades specifically. The interesting part of that is the primary population for that is women uh, looking for that type of work. Um, We are also seeing a lot more people wanting to work and be very successful in working at dispensaries. And that's a really kind of important thing for us because resource assistance for youth supports people with harm reduction. Um, And so smoking weed is something that um, is kind of an accepted practice Mm -hmm. as a form of harm reduction if you're coming from other other addictions. And we're seeing a lot of people not only be successful, but get promoted. Uh, One of our former youth is now a supervisor and I think has recently applied for a management position 
um, which is amazing. Yeah. And you stole the next question right out of my mouth. I was going to ask about job trends or education trends. Are you seeing oh, that? Yeah. Oh, that's okay. Um, are you seeing, yeah. So you said construction, roofing, um, when it comes to education, are you seeing like they're all interested in some similar things? Are there any sort of trends there? Yeah. So we, we don't see a lot of people interested in education. And the main reason for that is because people were kicked out of school because their families were probably living below the poverty line. And unfortunately there were a million barriers going on and that person wasn't able to be successful in a typical school system. Mm-hmm. We're working with brilliant kids. And so often what we're supporting people with is to have the confidence to enter a grade 12 program um, so that they can finish their grade 12 if that's something that they choose. And we're seeing a lot of that happen generally a year or so after they finish the program. They've had some work. They're recognizing that um, promotions or other opportunities require their grade 12 and they're starting to go back to school. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do see a lot of people who would be ready for more post-secondary. A lot of them are looking for um, child and youth care type of work. Okay. Uh, and, and that's largely because they're coming into the field of work based on their own lived experience. And they want some of the kind of textbook information to go along with it. Yeah. This is a bit of a nerdy question, so I apologize in advance. Uh <laughs> What are some common challenges that you see them go through? Because I know with this generation of youth, you know, they're they're facing some really unique challenges, whether it's, you know, wage inflation, education inflation, you know, re- recently it's house prices and rent prices, you know, there's like those economic and social um, issues. Do you see, like, what are some of the biggest barriers that your clientele have to overcome? Is there some very common ones that you see or some strong ones that you see? in terms of what challenges they might uh, face? Yeah, I I think that um, we definitely struggle and see our participants struggling when they are experiencing different crises um, based on, again, some of the barriers they might be living with and having very ill-informed colleagues or employers. Um, and, and we do our utmost to support employers and participants to be the right fit for each other. It's not like we're not putting any thought into this. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we find some employers who are maybe new to working with um, a partner agency like Ray and youth that would, you know, by the government standards, be deemed at risk. Um, there's a lot of stereotyping that exists. And unfortunately, with some of that stereotyping, there is racism and systemic racism that we are having to deal with on a regular basis. Um, and that's really frustrating because I would never put a participant in a workplace where I feel like there would be more harm than good. Yeah. Yeah. That initial overcoming of it. And, and from a result of that, do you see yourself working with similar partners most of the time? We try to switch it up. You know, I think the ultimate goal for any employment program is you have your, your shelf full of jobs that are available and you can call the employer. We're not quite there yet, um, but we also don't want to become a revolving door for employers. Yeah. Um, you know, and I don't feel good. You know, if I have a participant who wants to work in a restaurant, I'm not going to support them to be a cleaner. Yeah. You know, like we're, we're very, we're very uh, mindful about that part of it because you're going to see more success if people are happier where they're working. Totally agree. And I guess this is um, this question is jumping out at me. How has COVID affected your organization? Because my assumption is that 
um, you know, the clientele that you see would probably be more engaged in an in-class environment. Yeah. And uh, obviously COVID's changed a lot of things for a lot of different organizations. But mm. can, you speak, can you speak a little bit about the challenges that you have to face through COVID and how you've kind of tried to engage students through that? Yeah, totally. So you're, you're absolutely right. An in-person program just simply works better for our population. And I, would, I think it was in January 2021, we, we had to take a break from programming and redo stuff because we had to turn everything into a virtual model. We taught a virtual class for six months. We ran, I think it was three cohorts virtually. There was success in that, 100%. And many of those people are still working. The challenge, though, is that when you're going through a crisis or you need to talk to someone, it's very difficult to do that um, over Zoom or um, what, especially when you haven't met that person face to face. What we're seeing now that we're back into in-person classes is some people are just living with different types of anxiety than they were before. And I think a lot of it is COVID related. And I guess how to phrase this question. <laughs> Uh, if you could change anything to make your clients that much more successful, is there one huge barrier in the way? If you could change anything, whether it's like a, a government policy, whether it's a, a perception, like you're saying, in terms of mental health, is there one big thing that you would change that would make your clients so much more successful, so much the path so much easier for success? Is, is there one big hurdle constantly in your way that you're finding in this line of work? Um, I mean, there's there's a few. Yeah, <laughs> I think uh, I th I think that that when it comes to people who are connected to what I call systems, which would be CFS, EIA, etc., um, those supports are not person centered, and there's very little recognition that a lot of the young people that we serve have been dealing with generational poverty. Mm, yeah, we have a lot of young people who have never known anybody in their life to work before. And that has nothing to do with them or their families. It, it really goes all the way back to truth and reconciliation and the colonization that happened in Canada, right? I think that if social assistance were above the poverty line for what people could earn, people could get off of social assistance that much easier. Mm -hmm. That would That's certainly a massive hurdle. I also, though, think that if the school system was created to be much more accepting of people who learn differently, yeah. what find in our programming is our kids are brilliant, but they just are, they learn differently and there's nothing wrong with them. And I don't even think it's worthy of a diagnosis, but if there was the acceptance for people to be a little bit different, I think that that would go a million times better for these kids. Um, we have a lot of anxiety that these kids face as they're entering our program because they've been kicked out of schools and they've been told they're not good enough. And so we really had to create a whole new type of program and way of learning yeah. that these guys felt like walked in the door and felt accepted. Yeah. You know? Was that a conscious decision? Was that like, I'm assuming there's some ways that you teach differently that you've learned from past students, say like they've accepted it better or um, just like feedback from previous classes where they say we liked learning this way and not this way. Is there some sort of popular techniques or anything that you utilize quite frequently there? Our curriculum is completely um, youth driven. I actually hired a youth at the beginning of, of the program three and a half years ago to help build the curriculum with us okay. with the intention that um, I've been in this field for long enough. 
And I know that what I may say to you is actually not relevant. And when we have something that doesn't go well in a class or isn't relevant, we take it out, we change it, we adapt it, and we always get the youth's voices to help support us with those changes. Every cohort looks different. And we're, we're really happy and proud about that fact. Yeah. And sort of to go back to your point before, you have some wiggle room to be a little bit more creative and to be a little bit totally. more valuable. Yeah. So yeah. the lessons that you learned in music, your first love, <laughs> does that experience or does that knowledge translate anywhere in this field? Is there anything that you've learned previously from trumpet, French horn, singing that kind of translate to your current field? Yeah, I, you know, I think in some ways it does. I, I had a very kind of militant music experience when I was in high school. I think out of all of that, though, I have a very strong work ethic and drive. Mm -hmm. When I see, when I, when I have a vision or a goal, I'm pretty good at accomplishing those goals with support and I bring people along with me. And that was a big thing with music. We would have a big piece as a group that we had to finish and there were things that weren't working. And, um, you know, same with the choir that I, you know, that I sing in is we all have this end goal of putting on a big concert, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of the work ethic and the way that I bring groups together and make sure that everyone's included um, is most definitely from, from my music. Excellent. So Karen, let's say that someone came up to you and said, Karen, I want to be in this field. I want to do the things that you do. I want to help youth in need. What is their first step? What advice are you giving them to get a, a first step into this field? Um, you know, I would say get to know people in the field, um, get to know the variety of people in this field because it's a broad, broad network of folks. Yes, it is. Um, and and that, like that was the best thing that I ever did early in my career was start calling other employment agencies and just going for coffee. And I really think that that's huge. And if people are looking at um, the career development side where it might include some sort of government support, whether it's funding from education and training or working with people on social assistance, I think it's so important to learn about those people and, and you know, connect with some of the stakeholders. That's been incredibly helpful as I transitioned out of government and into nonprofits is I have people to call when something's not working. Well, I've created policies with EIA, and those things aren't hard to do once you've done that relationship building. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Do you ever miss BC? Would you ever go back? Um, I miss it every day, except when I see their COVID cases, I don't miss it. <laughs> <laughs> I really miss the mountains and the ocean, and I will forever long for them. But my whole family followed me here after I moved here. And you know, I am so close with my parents and my sister and my nephew that I would rather be homesick for BC and have them here. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. I mean, mosquitoes in winter versus mountains and lakes, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's uh, I, as soon as the, the winter comes, I, I might tell you a different story. <laughs> I'll be like, actually, I changed my mind. Yeah. Can I, can I take that answer back? Yeah, um, but I mean, I feel so grateful, especially in this last year, that I've been able to have my immediate family five minutes away. You know. Yeah, I think that's a big pull um, from people from leaving anywhere. Is I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave yeah. that network. Right. So I can definitely understand that. Mm -hmm. um, and and my final curiosity is: Are you currently 
having, I'm assuming you still have music in your life as a hobby or even sometimes beyond that. How does music still live in your life? Are you part of any sort of groups? I guess not in COVID times, or maybe you are, but uh, how, how are you still practicing music? Yeah. Um, so I do sing in a group choir called Slanalooks. Um, I'm taking a break because of COVID and mm. kind of having a bit of a crappy year and needing to refocus, but my intention is to go back. I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. I think that I am at peace when I'm listening to, to music. You know, mm. that's really what settles me. I'm a massive music nerd. And so, you know, when I need to refocus my brain, I can put basically anything on. Um, and it doesn't have to be classical music. It can be heavy metal and I can, <laughs> I can get the same, the same feeling. And I mean, I sing in my car all the time. So <laughs> can't wait for concerts to come back. When Slayer comes back, you'll be in the pit throwing some. Fists. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and do you find in your field, there's more of an emphasis on the staff to kind of pursue some stress alleviating activities? I don't know if, if certain days can get really heavy. Uh, I don't yeah. know if you want to speak to that a little bit. I Yeah, I am a huge promoter of self-care. Everybody needs to have an outlet, even if it's a bubble bath and a glass of wine. Mm-hmm. Um, but I will say one of the things that I am most grateful for with working at Resource Assistance for Youth is that it, we're all in the work for the right reason. And we know that when we've had a really crummy day, um, because we do deal with a lot of crisis, no matter what department we're in, we are a family. You know, and I know that even in my position, if I had a crummy day, I could call one of my employees and say, hey, let's like, can we chat about this? Um, and that's really nice. Like, I think that at all levels, there's there's support for each other. And I think that it really has helped our us bond even more. Um, we're a weird and wacky group, but it makes <laughs> the world so much better, I have to say. Hopefully they agree with you when you call them weird and wacky, so. Oh, I, they would say even more things, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's one of the best things about COVID, uh, if I could say such a statement, is that I think there's been a lot of focus on people's mental health, their, their self-reflection, yeah. right? So yeah, um, that's definitely been in the forefront. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, Karen, excellent. Uh, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining me today. Before we go, I don't know if you've listened to the other episodes and what's in store for you, but you have an impossible trivia question to answer before we end. Okay. Because us in career, we uh, we don't have all the answers. So just to prove it, here's a really, really, really tough question. Are you ready? Okay. Uh, so the Nintendo Game Boy was released in 1989. Have you ever played the Game Boy before? Yes, I have. Uh, the most popular for Game Boy was Tetris. Have you ever played Tetris before? Yes. Your impossible trivia question, Karen. How many copies of Tetris sold for the Nintendo Game Boy? In 1989? Uh, all time. All Life, time? I'm lifetime gonna say, sale. I'm going to say 230 million. Slightly less. It was 35 million total. Yeah. Still making it okay, one of the most well, popular yeah. games ever, but yeah. It's pretty good. That's still the population of our fair country, so every, every man, woman, and child in Canada could get a copy of Tetris, no problem. right on all right so thank you so much karen again really great to talk to you to kind of shine a light on some of these things again career is so great because there's so many different areas and so many different expertise so many different backgrounds that come into it 
And again, it's really mm-hmm. great to talk to someone like you who specializes in you know the at-risk population, people who go to you as I don't want to say maybe even like a life raft, but even for some of these people, this is yeah. an uh, an absolute like life changing mm-hmm. experience. So I'll yeah. be very proud of the work you're doing, and thank you so much for joining. Yeah, me. thank you, thank you for having me. Okay, take care, Karen. Okay, see ya. Bye. For more information on MACD, including professional development, conferences, and other opportunities, please visit our website at www.macd-mb.org.